If you would, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 3. While you're turning there, on behalf of the church staff, I just want to say thank you uh, for, there was, there was a, a generous gift from the church to the church staff uh, for Christmas, and so the staff is very uh, appreciative and grateful for that, so thank you, church, for that. Also, while you're turning to Luke chapter 3, I want you to imagine for a minute what it would be like to be totally and completely unprepared for Christmas. And so for some of you, you know exactly what that's like because you maybe haven't even started shopping yet. Um, for some of you, maybe you've shopped, but you haven't put up your tree, maybe, and you are three days away, so that's just a reminder of that. Maybe you've not wrapped your presents. But could you imagine for a minute if you were to wake up one day and someone calls you up and they say, Merry Christmas, and you are totally and completely and 100% unprepared for that moment because you haven't looked at, for some reason, you didn't know what, what day it was, you hadn't looked at a calendar. How would you feel in that moment to be caught so off guard by the fact that Christmas was here uh, because you just had no clue? Would that shock you and surprise you and throw you off? So for us, we are grateful that we can prepare because there's all kinds of things around us that are reminding us, right? In August, the commercials start, not really, but the decorations are put out in Walmart around August and September, and then the Christmas music starts playing, and for so many people, there's the debates on when to start. Is it on the day after Halloween, or is it on the day after Thanksgiving, or once again, is it back in July? Um, there's so many things that remind us and help us to be prepared. What we find, though, when we look at Luke chapter 3, in the story of John the Baptist, or I like to kind of clarify and say John the Baptizer, um, though certainly I would think that he had the same theology we do, um, but he wasn't necessarily a Baptist in the sense that we are Baptists. He was one who did baptizing, though. But he came, and we know that he came to prepare the way. And though at that time, though folks had maybe not a calendar, because they didn't know what day the Lord was going to come, but they had the prophecies. They had the promises that Messiah was coming. For them, they were maybe going to be taken off guard. But the good news about our Lord is that he doesn't allow us to be taken off guard completely. And he sends John ahead to prepare the way. So let's read Luke, starting in chapter 3, verses 1. We're going to be going through 18. So we may stop a little bit before that and read the rest of it here in a moment. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We'll continue reading here in a moment. But this is the inerrant, infallible, and all-sufficient word of God. Let's pray and ask God to add his blessing. Lord, as we come this morning to hear your word proclaimed as the one who has been given the heavy task of proclaiming your word, Lord, would you empower me, empower me by your Holy Spirit to do justice to this scripture, to your words, to expound on it in a way that is correct, on a way that magnifies you, and that helps us to understand how you would have us live in light of this text. Lord, give us ears to hear what's being said and hearts to receive it and to be changed by it. And may you be glorified in what happens here. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our main idea, our thesis this morning is this, that John prepared the way for the king by teaching the way of the kingdom. Now, for you, you probably look at this and you say, well, this is Christmas, and we've actually been, we're as close to Christmas as we're going to be for a Sunday. And we've been talking about the Christmas story and the nativity story in Luke 1 and 2, and so the question may be, so why are we now here jumping ahead to Luke chapter 3? I promise that we're going to come back around. There's one more song of the songs of Advent that we're going to come to on Christmas Eve, and that is the song of the angels on the night that Christ was born. But I think to get a full picture of what Christ was actually coming to do, we need to see what John came to preach. Because if you remember, this whole story, this whole, uh, everything here started with Zechariah and with Elizabeth receiving this word that the one who's going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah was coming and was going to be born to them. So obviously what he had to do was so incredibly important that we don't want to miss the message of John when he finally shows up. Now this, though, is 30 years later. John has grown into a man. And if you think about it, that is a long time, right? Because for me, I'm 29 um, I'll be 30 in June. And I think about, for me, and maybe, maybe you don't feel that way, but for me, that's a long time. See, because they were told that the, the Messiah has come, and he's here, and a handful of people recognized that birth. But we don't know what exactly they did with that info. It seems to me they stored it up in their hearts, they remembered it. But as far as the people of Israel were concerned as a whole, the Messiah had not yet come. So for us this morning, as we look at this song, and, and maybe we can use the, the word song loosely, we've been looking at these places where maybe in your Bible, and the ESV, it certainly sets it off as that which is uh, set up like Hebrew poetry with these two-line sections. And so for, for us, that section is halfway through verse 4 through the end of verse 6. And what it is, whether we call it a song, whether we call it poetry, it all is formed the same way. Uh, whether it was all sung or not, we don't know. But here we have this song, this uh, song, this verse from Isaiah 40 that we read earlier. And this is the promise of the hope, of the comfort, of the consolation of Israel. This is what Simeon was looking for and waiting for. He said he was awaiting the consolation of Israel. And so for us today, though it would be easy for us to, to want to go and talk about Mary, to talk about the shepherds, and we're going to come to that on Christmas Eve, 
I want to share a quote from Steve Lawson, a, a phenomenal expositor of God's word, who says this, To those who preach, in your Christmas sermon tomorrow, be sure to preach the cross. So he sent this out, I guess, on a Saturday night before the last Sunday before Christmas, or maybe on the 23rd. He said, on the Christmas service sermon, be sure to preach the cross. Jesus didn't come to create a holiday, but he was born to die for sinners. So this is where Christ's coming actually began to matter. It's important that he came as a child. So don't hear when I say it starts to matter. It's important that he came as a child. It's important that we have this moment when he's about 12 where he is in uh, Jerusalem and he, he leaves his parents and they find him teaching and he's showing that he knows uh, much about God's word and God's law. But here's where the rubber is starting to meet the road as far as who he is. This is where it's starting to matter. If he only came for Christmas, if he only came for the birth and not for the cross, then he did nothing for you or me. All that would essentially be is like a royal visit of a king or queen to their colonies. But he didn't come just to take a look around. He came with a mission to do something. And so for us, we want to see what exactly it is that he aims to do. So even in a Christmas sermon where we're tempted to talk about good things, right things, like Jesus in the manger, we have to understand this, that essentially at the end of the day, every single sermon, whether it's from the manger or his life or the beginning of time or the end of time and everywhere in between, is bound up in the cross of Christ. Charles Spurgeon, and I'm telling you this just to help you understand why for me, I always go to this place. Because it's important that we always go to this place. Because this is the essence of the gospel and of God's word. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says. From every town and village and little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London. And so, from every text in scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the scriptures. That is Christ. Your business, when you get to a text, is to say, now what is the road to Christ? And so for me, church, I have one good sermon, and that is Christ and Him crucified. That's all I got, okay? Advent, Christmas, Easter, I have one good sermon. It's Christ and Him crucified and the promise of the resurrection to come. And for however long the Lord has me here, we're going to preach the same sermon, approach it a thousand different ways from a thousand different texts. And by God's grace, he's going to use that to make us into the people he has us to be. So for us this morning, though, I want us to see how, even though it's three days before Christmas, we're looking 30 days into the future of Christ's coming because this is what it was all about. This is why the manger happened, okay? So John comes, and first of all, he prepares the way. The way has to be prepared. People have to be ready. He, first of all, is preparing the way in fulfillment of prophecy. So we're skipping ahead here to verse 4, okay? And, and here's the thing, just, just, this is an extra thing, but what is amazing about all of this is the fact that Luke goes through and he names all of these important people. He names all of these po- politicians. He names these two high priests, which really shouldn't technically have happened. There shouldn't have been two high priests. There should only ever be one. That's another sermon for another day. But out of all these people who are important from the world standard, there was one person whom God intended, and that was John, this guy who was out in the wilderness eating locusts and wearing animal skins and not doing anything particularly important. Maybe from our perspective, we think he's a crazy person. 
And he's out in the wilderness, and it says, The word of God came to John. And it came to him in the wilderness. And so he went and he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But the reason he's doing this is because he is the fulfillment of prophecy. It says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that's John. And we see this from Isaiah 40. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The idea here is of the herald of the king who would go before the king and make sure that the path that they were taking from, where, from wherever it is that their throne, their kingdom is, to the place that they were going, the way was level. That there weren't potholes. That there weren't places where the bushes had grown up too much. That the hills weren't too steep. That the valleys weren't too low. Because the way had to be prepared for the king. And I want you to understand something. And this, this affects our theology, the way we think about this. It is not as though Christ is so weak that he needs some human being to go ahead of him and make the way smooth enough for his sweet, precious, meek, and mild self to go. That is not the, that is not the issue here. It is not that Christ is too soft to endure the difficulties of the road. It is that the way and the people along the way are not ready to see him. This is an issue of the honor of the king, not the weakness of the king. Because our God is a warrior king who does not need the way to be made low for him. It is not necessary, but he says that it should happen. Not for his sake, but for those who need to be prepared. And so that's why John is there. He is fulfilling this prophecy to make the people ready. To make the way ready. This is God's promise for the consolation and comfort of Israel that has been promised, and it's the fulfillment of that prophecy. So John prepares the way in fulfillment of prophecy first, but secondly, he fulfills the way through baptism. And so for us, we say, okay, like we get this, right? We understand the baptism thing, because it's in the name, right? Baptist. So we, we feel like we get this, but here's the thing. The kind of baptism that's happening here is not the kind of baptism that we know. Something interesting was happening, because see, for them... The only people who were baptized were Gentile converts, and Gentiles were folks who were not uh, ethnically Jewish. They were not originally part of God's people. And so for them, if you were a Gentile and you said, man, Yahweh, your God looks like he's the God I want to worship, and you said, I want to be part of your people, they had to be ritually baptized to be brought in to God's people. That was the only folks who were baptized at that point. John comes and he is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What that meant for the Jewish people is this. They realized just how steeped in sin they were. For them to go and to be willing to be baptized by John before Christ their Messiah had come and had established it as an ordinance was for them essentially to say that we are no better than that of a Gentile. This is what Gentiles have to do to be brought into God's people. For us, we recognize that we are so steeped in sin that we need this. This is a way of recognizing the true sinful state of them individually and as a nation. What I hope this morning is this. That the same way the Jewish people who are coming out to hear John preach, the same way they recognize their sinfulness in spite of all the things that they could have pulled up and said, well, but because of this and because of this and because of this, I'm okay. Instead, they realized, 
I am a sinner, full stop, period, end. That is who I am as a human being. They could have, like Paul says in Romans, and I think I talked about this last week, they could have talked about their whole resume as a people. We received the covenants. We received God's law. We received the revelation of him. We had the temple. We had God's presence in the temple. We had all these things. But that realize that they individually were sinners. Question for you is this this morning, though. Have you recognized your sinful state? Or are you this morning, though you know what God is calling you to do or calling you not to do, you continually fight the Holy Spirit about that fact? You know the Spirit is, is in there helping you understand you're sinning in this way and you're fighting against it. I hope for you this morning that you will hear and heed the Spirit's words. So, in light of all this, it says in verse 7, He said, therefore, to the crowds, so because of the fact that he is this one who is preparing the way for the Messiah, verse 7 says, he therefore said, or he said therefore. Because any time you see the word therefore, you look back to see what it's therefore. Have y'all ever heard that, really? Every time you see therefore, you look back to see what it's therefore. Thank you. We have to look back and see what it's there for. The therefore is there because we're seeing that John is preaching this because that is the message he was sent. This is the way in which he is preparing the people. He's not just saying, okay, guys, get ready. Make sure your hair is brushed. Make sure you take a bath. Make sure you look good. The king is coming. But hear what he says, because he's telling us what the way of the kingdom is, okay? He's telling us that this kingdom way that Christ is setting up of this king who's coming, the way of the kingdom is this, and it's having true repentance. Hear what he says. You brood of vipers, I'm going to try that again, because that's not how he says it. There's an exclamation point there. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized in. So imagine everyone coming there. This is like having an altar call, and everyone's standing there and say, hey, all right, we we want to get saved. We want to do this and that. And for me to look at them and say, you brood of vipers, could you imagine that? That goes against every, every kind of church growth evangelistic class I took in school, right? But that is what John said. He asked them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's the deal. There are folks who come out to take part in evangelism and God's people. And sometimes they are absolutely legit when large crowds come. 3,000 came at Pentecost. And from what we can tell, they were absolutely legitimate. But here these large crowds come to him, and he understands that they are coming because of other reasons. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He understands that they're there for the wrong reason. He tells them what they need to do. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, for them, they were trying to flee from the wrath to come through this ritual baptism. Though some of them were recognizing their sin, it seems like not all of them were. They think that a simple act, a simple religious ritual, will make them clean and pure. But he says this, you know it's not true. You know that faith is not real because you're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit is the natural result of life. 
If there is no life going to a tree, fruit will not appear. But every tree that is good and healthy and doing what it should will have fruit. The question for you, if you would all consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, is this. Do you have fruit? Are there things that come up out of your life, out of your heart, out of your soul? Are there actions that your hands take that are not your attempts to save yourself, but are the result of Christ's saving power in you already? Do you have fruit that's in keeping with repentance, or is it just a ritual? For so many of us, we want religious rituals inside this building to make us feel secure. We think if we come to the altar every now and then, we think as long as we can join the church and have our name on the roll, we think that if we come and take part in the Lord's Supper, if we've been baptized, if we're giving the right amount of money, that that makes us right with God. And it doesn't. It never has, and it never will But maybe for you it's something different. Maybe for you it's the social rituals outside of this building. For you, you care so much about justice in this world. And you go and you feed the poor and hungry. You take care of those who have little. And though that is so incredibly important to do, for you, whenever you think about your righteousness, you say it's those things. There are so many religious rituals and social rituals inside of this church building and outside of this church building that causes us to think that we're good. But if that is the basis of our hope, then John says to you and to me, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. See, the fruits come out of the repentant heart. They do not cause the repentant heart. He also says, don't begin to say, right, It's almost as though he understands. He knows that they, as soon as he says that, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, they're going to become offended and kind of say, well, listen, I'm a a son of Abraham. That means not that they are actually Abraham's son because he lived a long time before this, but we're his descendants. We're his people. He says, don't say that to yourself. See, that doesn't make you anything special, he says. God could raise up stones and make them sons of Abraham children of Abraham. Here's what you need to understand. Your spiritual heritage will not cut it. You will not get into heaven on the coattails of mom or dad. I don't care how godly and spiritual they were. Of grandma or grandpa, mammy or pappy, whatever you call them. You will not get into heaven on their coattails. It is only through repentance and faith in Christ that you will be a son of Abraham a daughter of Abraham, one of his spiritual descendants. Understand this. God is calling you to repent of being your own God, your own ruler, and your own king, and to make him your own ruler and God and king. And if you do that, that will lead to fruit. But understand this, too. For many of you, you bear the name of Christ, and you say, I'm a Christian, and you do all the religious things, or maybe you don't even do the religious things. You just say, I'm a Christian, I have it written down in my Bible where I prayed this prayer one time, and you think you're good. But understand this. Some of you have never, ever in your life bore any kind of fruit in keeping with repentance. And if you want to what Paul, or excuse me, not Paul, John says to that, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
Don't look at yourself and all the religious rituals you can do. Don't look at yourself and all the social things you can do. Look to Christ. Because if there is no fruit, church, then there is no root. That root that you think is there is rotten. And he says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, he says it's cut down and it's thrown into the fire. This is a picture of what happens in an orchard whenever a tree is not producing fruit. It's worthless and it's taking up space. So what has to happen is the axe has to come and take it out by the root and throw it into the fire. But church, hear me. The reality of your situation and mine is that if we are not bearing fruit, it means that we are not regenerate. And if we're not regenerate, that means that what is coming for us is the fire of God's judgment. And this is a word that comes up multiple times later in this passage. So they say, what shall we do? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what does this look like? Well, it looks like taking God's commands seriously. We're going to get to the belief part in a minute, okay? Belief and repentance go together inseparably. And sometimes we need to hear about repentance first, and sometimes we need to hear about belief first. But it's always going to come together, because that, at its heart, is the crux of the gospel. They say, what shall we do? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So take God's commands seriously. As he's saying all this, the crowd says, what shall we do then? And he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. See, for many of them, they could go, and, and as long as they, they knew they had a 1,000 people, and for a 1,000 people, the government said, You need to give us this much money. But they could go and tell those people, You need to give me twice as much. Instead of a thousand, uh, one piece of silver per person, they would say, I need two pieces of silver. And all of a sudden, they're making a lot of money, Right? The government didn't care as long as they got their cut. But he says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. John looks and he spells out three things. Greed, dishonesty, and contentment. And he says, do you want to know what some of the fruit of repentance looks like? This is not the entirety of it, but some of it looks like. For those of you who are greedy, it looks like putting that down. Not being lovers of money, lovers of your things, but being willing to share with other people. For those of you who are willing to be dishonest, it looks like turning to honesty. Dealing honestly in your finances, in your relationships, in your marriage. For those of you who are not content with what you have, he's talking to these soldiers here who were likely those, maybe these Israelite warriors who stood guard in the temple. For them, there's all kinds of ways where they could extort, and it came from a place of not being content with what they have. He says, be content with your wages. Be content with what God has given you. There's a lot of us here who are discontent with a lot of things. Maybe for you it is how much money you make. Maybe for you it's your house. Maybe for you, it's your spouse. Maybe for you, it's your situation in life. I don't know what it is. But you're discontent. And what that leads to is a lack of trust and thankfulness to God. He says, stop being about yourselves, essentially. If we're going to sum these three things up, and the entirety of the law, it's this. Stop being about yourself and be about the other people around you. Because God was not only for himself, but he was also for you. We have to understand that he has called us to do this. 
to be gracious and generous with others. But we can't only boil this down to just the, the financial and the tangible, the physical. We have to understand that the greatest way that we can be selfish is to have been given the gospel of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins and then to hold on to it and cling to it so tightly and for people to come by and walk by us every day at work. Walk by you every day at the line in the factory where you work. Walk by you every day in the office that you work in. And you have the gospel of life that would give them eternal life, that would cause them to have repent or fruit that comes from repentance and a new heart. And every day as they walk by, you say, I know I should, but I won't. Christ says, stop being about yourself and be about others. And John says that. The last thing, though, the last way of the kingdom, we first have having true repentance, but the last way of the kingdom is believing the true Messiah. All this talk of repentance is just works righteousness if we don't believe in the true Messiah. See, they came to him and they say this. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, so they're saying, is this guy the Messiah? He's preparing the way for the Messiah, but is he the Messiah? He says this. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, he is coming. And the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. They thought John was the Messiah, and John knew better. He knew that he wasn't even unworthy to untie the shoe of Jesus. If they had socks back then, they were probably stinking. He wasn't even unworthy to take that sock off. And he understood that. And he says this, you think I'm doing something big here by baptizing you with water? You need to understand something. There is one coming who can do so much more for you than I can do. He's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Water baptism symbolizes true baptism. Every time we do this ordinance that is baptism, we are showing the fact that that person who is baptized is joining Christ in his death and in his resurrection. But we're also showing that they have been baptized into the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit, submerged in the Holy Spirit, where God's Spirit is in every single inch of us, controlling us, leading us, doing what he would with us, in our lives. He says that is the true Messiah, the one who comes and who changes a person by his Holy Spirit from the inside out. That's the real Messiah. But for a lot of us, we don't want that Messiah. We want the Messiah who makes us feel good. We want the Messiah who we look at in the manger and who is sweet and cute. We want the one who comforts us, only comforts us, with nothing more. Is it true that our God comforts us? Absolutely. Are we excited and joyful for the fact that he gives us comfort in our times of distress? Without a doubt. But the true Messiah is coming to bring a change through the power of his Holy Spirit. Because if there is no change, then we have to understand there is a judgment. He says he will baptize you, which means to submerge. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We have two options. 
If we are not baptized with the Holy Spirit, if we are not submerged in the Spirit that makes a change in us, that brings about repentance and the fruit of repentance, then the baptism that's coming for us is the baptism, the submersion of fire, being submerged in that. It is the judgment. If you don't know what I'm getting at, to make it clear and plain, it is hell. The judgment of God's hell. Here's what he says. His winnowing fork is in hand. This winnowing fork is this fork, think of it kind of as a a wooden pitchfork. And they would take the grain and they would throw it up in the air. And the chaff, the outer part that was light and that you didn't want to be grinding into into your flour, that part, the wind would catch it and it would blow it away. Because it was worthless and it was useless. That winnowing fork that separates the chaff from the wheat, it's in his hand, he says. He's going to be using it to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. See, God's purpose is to distinguish from his people and from those who are not his people. Those who are the wheat, who have been changed by him, who have been given the Holy Spirit so that they can have true repentance and true fruit that comes from repentance. They are the wheat gathered into the barn, but the chaff it says he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. To say that it's unquenchable means that it will never end. To say that it's unquenchable means that you can't hope that at a certain point it'll be done and go out. It consumes completely. That chaff will be completely consumed. And for us, often we want to have the joy of Christmas without the hard truth of the gospel. But there is a joy here in the fact that for you today, if you hear his voice and respond to him, for you, you can be no longer chaff. You can be wheat that has the hope of being gathered into the barn. If you hear his voice today, his Holy Spirit drawing you and convincing you that he is God, and changing you, and making you new and alive again, he will give you the gift of faith, of belief in the true Christ. Not someone like John who looks like him, but the true Christ, as he is, not as you want him to be. And from that true faith in the true Christ will come true repentance, and from that true repentance will come fruit. This is the culmination of the Christmas story. This is why all of this happened. This is why chapters 1 and 2 are so important. Because Christ is coming. And there is a judgment to come. And without the Christ who comes and lives the life you couldn't live so that he could die the death that you were going to have to die, we have to have this gospel. That's why one and two, chapters 1 and 2 of Luke are so important. Because this is the future that's coming. This is the way of the kingdom. For so many of us, we want the king without him being a king. We want Jesus without his lordship over our life. But I will tell you something. To call you, if I were to call you and say, only just believe that he'll save you from your sins, but not trust in him as king and submit to him as the king and lord of your life would be half of a gospel, and half of a gospel is no gospel at all. But John is coming and saying there is a kingdom that God is setting up. 
And to be in that kingdom, you have to submit to that king. And this is how. So if you're here this morning and you are one who says, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, I trust in him. You've made some profession of faith. My question to you is this. Are you prepared to live in the kingdom under the rule of the king? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? And what fruit, as you look at your life, do you know is lacking and needs cultivating? For us, we understand that our sanctification, our process of becoming more like Christ, is something that we would call synergistic. The Holy Spirit works in us, but we are every day choosing whether or not we will follow Jesus, or whether or not we will will submit his commands or not. Now, it's monergistic in the sense that God creates salvation in us. He gives us the gift of faith. That is salvation. But sanctification is synergistic. For you, you can't just sit back and say, all right, I'm going to wait for the Holy Spirit to create holiness in me. That's not how it works. And for the folks who do that, you have to ask yourself, am I actually part of the wheat or am I part of the chaff? Those who love God and are submitting to his kingship will understand that they can only follow him and only obey him through the Holy Spirit's power in them, but they know that every day as they come across situations, they have to say, will I follow Jesus or not? Will I, when I find the person who is lacking two tunics, two shirts, or who is lacking a tunic or a shirt, clothing of some kind, will I share that with them? Will I be honest in my dealings instead of dishonest? Will I be content or not? The other question is, are you preparing, Christian? Are you preparing others to live in the kingdom under the rule of the king? There are folks here who are totally and completely unprepared. There are folks in your life that you'll be sitting around the, Christmas ta- the dinner table with at Christmas who are totally unprepared to be in the kingdom, to see the judgment. They are those for whom the axe is going to be laid to the root, and there is no fruit. And the question is, are you preparing them for that, to live under the rule of the king? And when you do so, and you try to actually help them be prepared, are you proclaiming Christ as he is, or Christ as you want him to be? If he's Christ as you want him to be, he is no Christ at all. And finally, for you this morning, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, my question for you is this. Are you prepared to live in the kingdom, under the rule of the king? You may have a really great time coming here and celebrating the person of the king. You may like the idea of Jesus, but if you like the person but don't like his role, you don't like his position as king over all the universe and king over your life, then what that actually means is that you don't like the king. And we have no business celebrating him if we won't recognize him for who he is. So as John tells the people to trust in the true Messiah, the true Christ, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, who leads us to repentance, which leads us to fruit. To you, I say, that is the gospel message to you. Trust in the true Christ. Repent and believe his gospel. Because he has come once, but he is coming again. He has had a first advent, but the second one is coming. People were unprepared for the first. And though they were unprepared, they had a chance, a moment. For us, there's a second advent coming. And there will be a point 
or no longer will you have the chance. So today, if you hear his voice, will you stop being your own king and submit to the true king? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to sing this final song, Lord, our prayer is you would help us to love and grasp the fullness of the Christmas story and the Christmas message. That we would not just leave Jesus in the manger as a baby, but understand that he is the coming warrior king who, if we are unprepared, he will make the way straight. He will level it. Help us to understand, Lord, the judgment that is there for those who, though they claim to be Christians, live in unrepentant sin. Help them understand, and this is not my words but yours, that they are a brood of vipers. Lord, they can expect nothing but your wrath and judgment. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, I ask that you help us to submit ourselves to you as the king every single day, to submit ourselves to your law, for it is good every single day. And may we always be willing to make others prepared and ready for the second coming. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.